Hello and welcome to Romaniacs, an essential service that has remained open throughout the lockdown period. I'm Dorian Linsky. Before we start, I just wanted to give you an idea of what Romaniacs will be doing as the transition continues to resemble a very boring remake of Groundhog Day. We think Romaniacs is defined by its values, outlook and tone and we want to sort of apply that voice to a broader range of topics because ever since we started three years ago, we've talked about different aspects of politics and culture in Britain under the umbrella of Remain. And that we effectively have a vote leave government. Everything's permeated by the forces that brought you Brexit. So when something specific to do with Brexit processes, the news of the week will be all over it. But it's important to talk about what really matters because Romaniacs is for life, not just for Brexit. Joining me this week are three of our regulars. Ros Taylor is editor of the LSE Brexit blog. Hi, Ros. Hello. So the government has decided to merge the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development. DFID's been a key tool of British soft power for years. The Brexit press hate it. It was UKIP policy to abolish it. What's this say about the ambition uh, to have a sort of global Britain and, and influence abroad if you're sort of diminishing the role of this department? Well, Global Britain and the idea of it, which is very Brexity idea to come back to the way almost everything comes back to Brexit in the end nowadays. There we go. Not like yeah, I promised. You see, I, I'm just I'm just making those connections. <laughs> no. but Global Britain is it was always very Brexity, and the early aspirations, if you like, for Global Britain were set out in a report called Britannia Unchained, which was written in 2012 by. Um, let me know if you recognise these names. Pretty Patel, Miss Trust. <laughs> Quasi Quateng, Dominic Raab, yeah, all familiar, or you know, in pretty much in government now, and so that view of the world has become a lot more dominant. And that view is that you ought to be able to harness the existing links that we have with the Commonwealth in order to boost British trade through the means of the aid budget. And it basically means that what Boris Johnson now wants to do and what he's hoping to achieve by merging these two departments is to make it easier for British aspirations, British hopes of flogging things abroad to be enabled by the parts of the aid budget. So we can basically shove aid towards countries that we want to do deals with. So because he says that the £15 billion DFID budget will be maintained, but it's going to be spent elsewhere because he said... And in a very sort of tin-eared statement that why spend money on Tanzania and Zambia? What do these countries have in common? Um, rather than, you know, Ukraine, which is, a, you know, a sort of bulwark against uh, Putin. So basically they are going to be spending the money, but not on uh, people in need. Yeah, I mean, they are going to be spending the money, but the money will be harnessed to British trade interests. And if the country that... Uh, the country concerned may need the aid and may need targeted aid, but we can't sell things from Britain to it. It will be further down the list when it comes to uh, distributing British aid. Nina Schick is a political broadcaster and author whose book Deep Fakes in the Infocalypse is out in August. Hello, Nina. Hi. How are you? I'm very well uh, under the conditions. <laughs> um so we, we're used to seeing deep fakes in the information war um, between Russia and the West. Have they played much of a role in the narrative and disinformation uh, around COVID-19? Well, the interesting thing actually about deep fakes is that it's such a nascent technology that it hasn't actually been seen in the wild as of yet. The first kind of negative use case is in non-consensual pornography. But as the technology gets better, and this is really, you know, a matter of three to four to five years, we're going to be seeing more and more of it 
in political context. And I think that what is happening now around the two big global events around COVID and also the George Floyd protests show us how video as a medium of communication is more important than ever. So when AI is sophisticated enough that video can be subverted and AI can be used to create fake video that is not authentic, but looks like it's authentic. I think the political mess and the kind of partisan polarization, uh, the ability to deny facts or come to any kind of common consensus as to what reality is, is going to be blurred even further. So if we think that we're facing a problem now, I think the weaponization of AI as a tool of disinformation propaganda is potentially going to take us to an even more difficult place within the next decade. Because I think when you say deep fake, the uh, the obvious sort of danger that people think of is creating something fake and passing it off as real. But you mentioned the George Floyd example, and I think is it? Do you think it's just as dangerous that the legitimacy of real footage would be questioned? So the racists, for example, would look at that video of George Floyd's death. And then sort of claim that it's uh, it's been fabricated. One hundred percent, and that is actually, I think, the bigger threat of deepfakes in the context of the biggest uh, political event that's upcoming, the twenty the twenty twenty election in the United States. It's actually a phenomenon called the liar's dividend, and that is when everything can be faked. Everyone has plausible deniability. And Donald Trump himself, if you consider the twenty sixteen kind of nadir of the electoral cycle of his campaign when that tape emerged where he bragged that he liked to grab women by the pussy. Um, since then, he has started dismissing that tape as fake. At the time, he kind of churlessly had to apologize for his comments. And I think that the understanding and the knowledge that now video can be faked, even though it isn't good enough that it's... Um, there's widespread use cases of it yet, means that the liar's dividend, the people who are saying anything that they don't agree with, even visual media that's authentic is fake, that is going to go up exponentially. I, I, I expect we'll see that around um, the election. And by 2024, when this technology really is out there, um, you'll see even more of that, where the kind of partisanship in terms of interpreting visual media is really is re people really hunker down on that? Joining us from Greece is the thrillingly real Alex Andreou. Hi, Alex. How are you? <laughs> Hello. Um, Marcus Rashford, uh, or Daniel Rashford, if you're Matt Hancock, has managed to shame <laughs> the government into reversing its policy on free school meals. Can we get him to sort out the transition as well? Have we been neglecting uh, the footballer tactic? Yeah, unfortunately, we can't because the 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 value of uh, interventions like Rashford's are because of the surprise of the novelty of it. If Marcus Rashford was to say something else that's political um, in the next couple of days, he would basically risk going into the Gary Lineker category where he begins to be dismissed as partisan. So, um, so he has to be judicious with when he uses that power. But that doesn't mean another young footballer cannot, um, you know, shock the establishment by, by broaching different subjects. We'll have to just assign them each. Yes, exactly. Uh, a, key, a key issue. <laughs> yes. 
have a formation and a rotation, as we call it in football. And I was just writing something about the charity War Child, which works with a lot of musicians. And the musicians that I was talking to said, well, you know, it's very complicated. Conflicts can be very complicated. But when somebody goes, well, children, you know, do you want children to suffer? You know, do you want to help the children? It's really obvious. Even people who are kind of, you know, politically kind of quite ignorant will go, well, of course you want to help the children. Um, Boris Johnson didn't seem to think uh, that feeding disadvantaged kids would be a, a popular idea, let alone a moral imperative. <laughs> um, is what, what happened to the sort of canny, canny populist that he, he could be so sort of tineered on what was really quite a cheap uh, policy? I, I think it's the difference between being in campaigning mode and being in governing mode. Because while you're campaigning, you're actually coming into contact with a lot of people. But when you're in government mode, you're effectively in uh, the bubble of the cabinet. And because Boris Johnson has chosen the cabinet he has, Rachel Sylvester described it on, on the Today programme as a cabinet of nodding dogs. And because that cabinet is so incredibly narrow in its demography, I mean, it's 27% women, 15% non-white, zero black people, zero openly LGBT people, zero people with disabilities that we know of, yet almost 90% of it are between the ages of 40 and 55. 65% of them were privately educated, and half of them are Oxbridge graduates. So I was doing an audit of this cabinet for a piece I was writing for politics.co.uk. And I mean, clicking on their on their biographies, I got bored of reading is married with two children. Not that there's anything wrong with people who are married with two children. But when, you know, when 23 out of 26 people in the cabinet cabinet are married with two children, then you're not going to get the challenge when you're trying, say, to devise lockdown rules, you're not going to get the challenge of single people saying, how about socialising, which is quite important for single people? How about people who are sheltering on their own? Um, So they've created this situation where they won't brook dissent, they won't uh, accept any challenge to the orthodoxy. And that, I think, has made the policy that's coming out of uh, number 10 Downing Street, incredibly narrow and weak in its appeal. I've got to say, I'm, I'm an Oxbridge graduate who's married with two children, um, but it did occur to me that you should not <laughs> let children go hungry. So I, I don't know. <laughs> maybe, well, maybe there's, maybe know, there's another ha- factor there. Hashtag not all Oxbridge graduates. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying, if they, want some, if they want some help pointing out obvious, no, <laughs> some no, obvious no, things, the, I can the, do that. The point is not that any of those people don't have the sensitivity, empathy and open mind to think in in terms of how does this affect a different demographic. The, the problem is that when you stuff a room full of them, there is no other views coming through. And, you know, I mean, Sajid Javid was marched out of da- Downing Street for having the audacity to want to appoint his own team rather than accept the team appointed by Dominic Cummings. This is not a government that welcomes alternate views. 
No, indeed not. This week, our arguments over statues and Winston Churchill, a distraction from the real concerns of Black Lives Matter, and a sign the government is determined to exploit culture war bullshit now that Brexit isn't such a galvanising issue. Plus, with police forces around the world under intense scrutiny, is there any chance of reform under a Home Office run by a Maggie Thatcher Tribute Act? And we'll round up the Brexit news. That's after a few reminders from Roz. Our next Zoom live stream takes place on Thursday 9th of July at 8pm and it's exclusive to Patreon backers. I particularly hope you'll join us because it's my birthday and I'm not planning a big party so you'd better all turn up. If you're already supporting us on the popular crowdfunding platform then you'll have already had details of how to register. If not, why not sign up now? You'll get live stream access plus the podcast early without adverts and of course our acclaimed and sought after range of Romaniacs merchandise. And if you can't make it on the night, there's audio and video recordings afterwards. Search Patreon Romaniacs to sign up and we'll see you there. Thanks, Roz. First up, Britain had a very normal week with anti-anti-fascists, shame there isn't a shorter word for them, defending Churchill's (laughs) statue with, of course, the Nazi salutes that he famously loved. And Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden actually calling Google on a Sunday or at least shouting, Siri, call Google! because of a Twitter conspiracy theory that the search engine had deliberately removed Churchill's picture from its search page so as to give the upper hand to Hitler. This glitch uh, was actually just a brief result of an edit war on Wikipedia, but it played into the culture war that both the government and the far right find almost as exciting as the real war that they didn't fight in. Roz, before Edward Colston's statue was brought down, Black Lives Matter uh, was, you know, it was very clearly about black lives. Now the main story appears to be effigies of long dead white people, even though Black Lives Matter has not made that a priority in the slightest. Is this being worked by uh, both the government and the media uh, as a distraction from more serious issues? Yeah, I think it is. Um, It was quite strange. I noticed that uh, some activists were protecting a statue of George Eliot in in Nuneaton the other day, which uh, was quite surprising, but maybe they thought she was Queen Victoria. I don't know, anyway. Um, So it is an attempt to distract from more serious issues, and it's an attempt to focus on things that are easy to understand and away from things that are hard to understand and can be harder to empathize with. And in that sense, unfortunately, it's been successful because the headlines we've seen have often, especially in the Express and the Mail, have been about the attacks or threat to statues that has not actually happened i i should i I should say i mean churchill still seems ready to be unboxed but the uh, the emphasis has been on the statues because it's an easy concept to understand a statue being attacked in a way that systemic discrimination is a really difficult one to understand and to appreciate when you're not the victim of it alex conservatives uh criticized uh, their words thugs on both weekends saying that it doesn't matter what the cause is if you use violence uh, and i certainly saw this as the sort of a bit of a sort of sensible centrist trope on on twitter do they really think that ideas don't matter at all and 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 if the fascists are non-violent then they are every bit as legitimate as uh, as the non-violent anti-racists yeah this this had uh, this had a slight whiff of um, very fine people on both sides didn't it um, and maybe it will turn out to be that moment. Uh, of course it matters. Uh, you know, far-right ideology is by its nature violent. Its goal is violence. Um, so how 
its advocates' behave in public is neither here nor there. That's why far-right groups are, um, you know, prohibited by law. Um, There is an important point here, um, which I think has has not been raised enough, and it's about the nature of bringing down a public statue. Um, Because it's easy to call it vandalism and equated to someone, you know, breaking your windows or, or setting a car on fire. But this is actually an act against a bit of public property. So it's it's effectively a group of people who co-own something bringing it down. And that that gives it, for me, a very different flavor to setting a car on fire, which is a, a crime against personal property because it makes it a protest against the state. The target is, you know, the state. And what you were saying to Rose just before, um, I think this, I thought the same thing about the statue of, of uh, Baden-Powell, the creator of the scout movements, which was, you know, in the news all of last week and was fiercely protected. Um, and I couldn't find anyone that was calling for it to actually be destroyed or thrown in the sea. I think what happened was the council got uh, a a sort of list of things that might be in danger, and they made the judgment that because this particular statue was very delicate, because it has a sort of wide-rimmed hat, and uh, he's holding, I think, a, a staff of some sort, and it was right next to the sea that this particular statue was in danger and then the residents sort of took it from there and started this 24-hour vigil to protect the statue um, that didn't seem to be under any sort of threat so it was entirely confected would black lives matter wise not to hold uh protests last weekend or at least a large one um and sort of let the racists be seen to clash with the police rather than with counter protesters yeah very it was a it was a pr masterstroke to be honest um, they they simply let them get on with it. And I think those were the words of one of the organisers, actually. Um, uh, let's just let them get on with it, protest what they want to protest, do what they want to do. Um, and they certainly showed their uh, their uh, true face. Um, and after those uh, clashes, Jess Phillips said, look out your window, Britain isn't like that. Um, do you know from you sort of seeing those scenes? Do you think that we sort of overstate the importance of these sort of gamini Nazis in sunglasses, or uh, could they become a bigger threat? Do you feel the kind of you know the the wind is behind these people, or do they seem like a, a sort of very small angry minority? I think both can be true. Um, I think they can be just a, a, a very visible, angry minority. But that doesn't mean that, you know, because Jess Phillips looks out her window and doesn't see any, um, they're not part of Britain. Um, you know, I, I, can look, I can look out my window in Bermondsey um, most days and see nothing like that going on. And I can look out my window maybe after a, a, a match day in the nearby stadium or walk down to the to the shops past the pub, and suddenly I see a very different Britain. So, uh, you know, there isn't just one Britain, and it doesn't reside exclusively outside your window all the time. Nina, we were told many times that if Brexit didn't happen, then the far right would uh, would take to the streets, and that was kind of an incentive, apparently, to get it done. But, but here they are anyway. Um, 
Does this prove that actually that when you're making political decisions, you shouldn't really worry about what the far right wants and might do because it will find an excuse anyway? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, in the sense that the far right should not be kind of the imperative to guide your political decision making. On the other hand, we should worry about them um, in the sense that how is it that there is what I think actually is a very vocal and very angry minority of people, you know, how have they been allowed to become so radicalized and why are they so ideological? Because these really are people, in my view, who you can't negotiate with because they are so ideological, you know, they're almost terrorist-like in their kind of view of the world. Um, on a brighter note, I, I would say that I don't think they're indicative of half of the country. Um, this vocal minority, which we saw with a very kind of visceral embodiment of the worst British stereotypes, hooligans and thugs. And I think Alex was spot on when he just said just now that, you know, the best thing we could have done was just to let them get on with it. Because I think that the vast majority of the British public would have seen that, those scenes on the streets and not have been, uh, not see those those kind of thugs as, as you know, the backbone of Britain, whether or not you're on the left or on, your, on the right, I think that they are quite extreme and i don't think most of the country is behind them at all no i think the um i think the guy the drunk guy uh pissing next to a memorial to a, a murdered policeman um didn't didn't put them in the best light that didn't seem like the kind of the stout the stout yeoman of england julia hartley brewer would be delighted that you made that distinction he was pissing <laughs> that's <next> true <laughs> that that's true. As, so, as someone said, you know, I, I, I kind of, I, I wank next to the cenotaph, not <laughs> out of respect for the war dead. Um, and yet the judge still banged him up. It's I know. Come on. Ge uh, Germany, uh, Nina, has been sort of infinitely better at sort of confronting its its ugly past than Britain. Uh, but it's also, of course, experiencing a, a sort of far-right resurgence. I mean, I think they've, they've taken a bit of a knock recently, the AFD, but, you know, they're, they're still kind of a force. Do you think that being honest about history makes a, a real sort of difference to the far-right, or does it only make a difference on the kind of level of the, of the mainstream discourse? Well, if you look at Germany, I think that um, it has made a real difference. And this being Germany, where we have a word for everything – uh, there is actually a word for it. It's called Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. And that literally translated means working off of the past. And you're absolutely right to point out that, you know, German society is not free of uh, racism. You have that in the rise of the far-right AFD. You see this sometimes in anti-Semitic acts. Um, but culture and politics is just deeply, deeply informed by the history. You know, all of the arts, if you look at TV and film, uh, they reference Nazi history. We have these kind of public, uh, if you, I think one academic referred to it as public rights of repentance when the whole country comes together uh, to think of days like Kristallnacht or the liberation of Auschwitz. And then, of course, you have like the iconography everywhere in Germany. For example, the Holocaust Memorial, you have the memorial to like the Roma and Sinti who were ethnically cleansed. Anywhere you go in a German city, particularly in Berlin, you can't uh, take two steps without coming across another reminder of the kind of brutal 
history and the dark past of um, the Third Reich. And it's really interesting to me um, as a half German person how there isn't equivalent in the UK here when it comes to colonialism. Uh, I was very interested to learn from my British friends who went to school here that there isn't much of uh, a perspective in school in terms of colonial history. But of course, when it comes to the Second World War, a lot of emphasis on that. And the same in the US, you know, there's hardly, there isn't very much public knowledge on why the American Civil War happened, what the history of slavery is, let alone kind of the genocide of the Native Americans. So I, I, I do think there, there are some strong lessons that can be learned from how Germany has learned from its past. Ro- Ro- Ros, we would, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of interesting stuff to say about the kind of the, the history of Churchill. He was a divisive figure for most of his career. He sort of famously lost the 1945 election despite his war record. Um, you know, there is a whole conversation that, that kind of serious, curious people can have about it. But the people sort of defending him from imaginary vandals, um, is, is it sort of just ridiculous to even sort of talk uh, about the kind of the real history in that context? Because is it, w- what do you think is the symbol, the symbolism of Churchill? What is Churchill to them, quite apart from what the actual man was? You have to remember here that Churchill is personally very important to Boris Johnson. He's written a whole book about him. He likes to model himself on him. Uh, the whole narrative of Britain alone is one that Johnson has cultivated. So I think Johnson is trying to impose his vision and his <clears throat> idealization of Churchill on the rest of us in some ways. And you've seen this, you've seen this in particular with the plans to impose a, a, a 10 year uh, maximum sentence for anyone defacing a, a, a war memorial. It's completely disproportionate. I mean, 10 years is what you normally get for possessing a a firearm with intent to use it. It's really serious stuff. And you can argue this both ways. It's, it's, Alex was pointing out earlier that the statue is public property, and so perhaps it's less serious than if it were private property, if it's attacked. But you can also argue that the other way and say it's public property, therefore it's more important that we privilege the statue and take care of it. But you've got to remember that it's what... It's what autocrats tend to do. They change the law in ways that shore up their support and their prejudices, and they create essentially new crimes in order to stamp their authority on the country they're living in. And I think that is what Mm. Johnson is trying to do here. And Labour made supportive noises uh, about this new law. We've so far been generally sympathetic to Starmer's desire to avoid the sort of obvious Tory traps, you know, that that would enable them to be painted as sort of unpatriotic or whatever. Um, But do you think this was a a step too far, that there was just no need to rubber stamp that idea? Yeah, I mean, it was was pointless. I can see he doesn't want to give any ammunition to his enemies, but he's a lawyer. He ought to know, frankly, he ought to know better than that. And he ought to know how what kind of crime a 10-year maximum sentence attracts. Yeah, it was a little bit of a it was a little bit of an immigration mug moment for him there. I thought, um, Alex. Finally, is this uh, a sort of a sign of things to come that whenever things get sort of sticky and there are actually really huge substantive issues on which the government is failing or simply doesn't have any answers, um, they're just going to fire up the Brexit base with some some nonsense controversy? Hmm, maybe. Um, I, I guess 
I guess they will do that as as long as it keeps working, as long as it keeps getting rewarded. Um, the, it, it's a uh, Vergangenheitsaufarbeitung. Did I say that right, Nina? They're, yes. They're, they're working off the past record, basically. So as, as long as it keeps working for them, they'll keep going there, which is why I think actually the, the US November elections are going to be a really important moment in that because that's what Trump has tried to do throughout his tenure. He's basically completely ignored the floating voters and the Democrats and simply tried to fire up his base. If that works for him in November, then Mm. uh, Johnson's uh, strategy of doing that will only get worse. If it doesn't work, we may may see uh, quite a big change. Next up, one of the many things that's more important than statues. Boris Johnson is so enamoured with the idea of recruiting 20,000 more police officers that he got his cabinet to do a call and response about it after the election, like posh Bruce Forsyth. But it's not been a good few weeks for the reputation of the police, uh, to put it mildly. Now campaigners are calling for the police watchdog to be abolished and replaced by a truly independent body. Um, Ros, the Blair government commissioned the McPherson report following the murder of Stephen Lawrence, and this report popularised the concept of institutional racism. Black people are uh, obviously still disproportionately targeted by the police. Um, What is it in law enforcement that is resistant to change, so resistant to change? The police were relatively late to reform. I mean, the, the changes in the law that we saw after the McPherson report basically said for the first time that they had to try and prevent racial discrimination, that they had to be actively trying to stop it. And before that, that wasn't the case. That was really late and only 20 years ago, which when you consider the career of a police officer, it might not be that long. A police officer who just joined the force 20 years ago would be only 40 or so now and would not even be at the most senior levels. It's a career that people often stay in so you have uh, problems changing the culture one thing important things i think to think about here is the way that we think about the police and how we think about police very differently depending on who we are and this comes back to the points we were making earlier about <laughs> married married people with two children who are oxbridge graduates like like myself there's a, there's a, <laughs> yeah. We're, we're building a cabinet here. Yeah, that's fifty yeah, percent yeah. of this podcast. <laughs> yeah, but there is a point uh, that's often quoted in when you read about academic work on the police, which is comparing the the government to the knife and the police to the blade, and the people who are affected by the police, you know, see the blade, and. I generally don't see much of the police because of the situation I'm in. The people who do see a lot more of the police are often ethnic minorities. It's, it's hard for me to understand the issue, therefore, with the police because I don't see them in action very much. And this comes back, as I was saying, to talking about the composition of the cabinet and who sees 
what's going on. And it's a systemic problem with this government that they isolate themselves, have isolated themselves from the rest of society in all sorts of ways. They probably don't use public transport. They don't use state schools. They very rarely come into contact with the police, except in the context of the police protecting them, which is a very different dynamic. And that gives you a wholly, wholly different um, understanding of what the police do. And is reform particularly unlikely with a Thatcherite law and order hawk like Pretty Patel uh, in the Home Office? In a word, yes. <laughs> I don't see. I don't see why she would. She, I don't see why she would prioritise it. I think there's a certain thing as well going on with Pretty Patel where she's very anxious to come across as hardline as possible, and not to give any ground as she would see it to people whom she disagrees with because that's to regard as a sign of weakness there's a lot going on psychologically i think with pretty patel yeah um or oh, very little it's, there's it's something about the, the toughness there's a new yorker profile of lionel shriver which goes into which really explains her politics and there's a lot about being seen as hard and tough yeah. and strong and so much of it seems to stem from this sort of psychological need rather than ideology anyway <laughs> that's something for a, a therapist um alex there's a lot of talk uh, especially in america you know about defunding the police which which effectively means reallocating resources to other services that can tackle social problems less aggressively there's a lot of research that shows that that is a, a better use of money and um and just helps people more it can sound like it means getting rid of the police altogether. Uh, when, for example, people that say defund the BBC, they mean take away the license fee. Yeah. Do you think that that slogan is useful because it moves the Overton window? Or do you think it turns off people because it sounds more radical than it is? I think it probably does a bit of both. I, do, I, I think it's a disastrous slogan, to be honest. But I, I also accept that, you know, by talking about it so openly and popularly, it might open room for less radical developments. But I, I just think there, there is a way to do both. You know, the, I, I hate to make the, the left of the left bristle while listening to this by referring to Tony Blair once again. But, you know, the genius of tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, mm -hmm. is that it made clear that it wasn't a softening of uh, a law and order attitude, but that there was a better way of dealing with it. Um, and, and that, I think, would be, it would be useful to land on something like that, to say, you know, instead of constantly putting fires out, let's look at why those fires light, and then there will be naturally less of a need for firefighting. Um, even Jeremy Corbyn used to um, call for more money for the police uh, when he wanted to blame um, rising crime or a terrorist incident on, on austerity and cuts to the police. Mm. Um, is there any sort of political room in the UK uh, where, you know, the, the police is, it's, it's less, it's less militarised, it's less um, all pervasive than it is in the US. Um, is there much political room for a smaller police force here can, can anybody kind of win public support by going less money for the police mm, I, I don't I don't know if there's political room for it 
and I also don't know if there's a need for it. The police force in the UK is such a different animal to to the US, also to Greece. You know, the Greek police is incredibly heavy-handed and heavily armed. and, And I think a focus on enforcement tends to attract... A, a certain kind of people to the police. And that's where the problem uh, happens. I think in the UK, the police is seen, uh, in my view, as 50% law enforcement and 50% social work. And, and that attracts a very different kind of policeman or policewoman um, to the force uh, because it becomes more of a community service and more of a vocation. I think if that balance ever tips away from social work and more firmly towards let's have big guns and, you know, beat people over the head with it, um, not that that doesn't happen, but what I'm saying is if, if the focus shifts much more that way, then you will find that people joining the police are people who think they may enjoy exercising that kind of power over others. And I think that's broadly what's happened in the States. And Nina, Boris Johnson has announced a new commission on racial inequality, uh, clearly a top priority because he mentioned it in two lines in a paywall telegraph article about statues. <laughs> He's uh, appointed Munira Mirza, formerly of the Revolutionary Communist Party and spiked online, currently head of the number 10 policy unit to head it. She has denied the existence of institutional racism and condemned previous inquiries for fostering what she calls a culture of grievance. Diane Abbott said that her appointment meant the inquiry would be dead on arrival. Do you agree? I actually, so I want to choose my words very carefully on this topic. And I think I'm the only kind of minority mixed race woman on the panel. So first of all, about Boris Johnson, I would say that we can all universally agree that his response to what has been happening in the streets in the last few weeks has been abysmal. And uh, his kind of, well, perhaps he cannot even bring the unity, bring the country together on this issue, given his past very problematic history of things that he's written and said. Um, I, I think I really noticed the vacuum in leadership when the Black Lives Matter protests were happening. And I don't think we heard a peep from Johnson. And then he kind of made it into this almost perverse culture war about defacing statues and whether or not, you know, statues of slavery should be pulled down or not. On Mirza, I have to say that I don't know enough about her to comment on whether or not I agree or disagree with Diane Abbott. And the reason why I want to be really careful about what I say here is because this topic has become such a minefield and I actually don't think it's helpful. And perhaps this is only, uh, you know, the way that social media makes, makes it appear as though the public discourse is manifesting in this kind of weird and perverse category of like, you're either a racist or you're not a racist. And you either agree that everything in this country is institutionally racist or it's not institutionally racist. And that's not actually been my experience of living and um, living in the UK and my experience of being in this country, because uh, as some of you know, I'm actually half Nepalese and I grew up in South Asia where the problems of discrimination based on ethnic minority group, on uh, religious affiliation or gender are nothing. You can't even compare that to a country like the UK, where we do have, you know, it is illegal to discriminate on people on, on that kind of basis. And I 
my experience of living in the UK has overwhelmingly been a positive one. Does that mean that racism doesn't exist? No, it absolutely does exist. There is a lot of work to be done here. But in the same, by the same token, I think it is worth mentioning that the UK is one of the most diverse and tolerant societies that for people around the world, you know, you look to as a beacon of hope. It's actually one of the reasons I came here because in Nepal, because my father was a white man, um, I am actually stateless. I can't be recognized as a citizen because a white man cannot, um, he, he was not Nepali, so I couldn't actually be a citizen of that country. Um, not to even get into the dynamics of what it is to be a woman in South Asia. So I think that this issue is a very important one, and I think that it deserves debate but I think it deserves nuanced debate. And I don't think that the kind of divisiveness that we've seen, especially on social media, where you almost have these perverse um, demonstrations by corporations like, you know, for example, Apple, who actually used modern day slavery for their products, saying, you know, that they're anti-racist. I don't think that's helpful. I think it is worth keeping the nuance. And I also even though I might not agree with Mirza or Priti Patel um, politically, there is something to be said about the fact that they are being pilloried for holding conservative views. Why is that? You know, is it because we don't agree with their politics? That's fine. But then we also have to recognize that they're ethnic minority women. So I think it's a very, very complicated topic that can't be distilled down into simple. Uh, mm. Yeah. So that's what I would well, the New Statesman uh, did point out there were, there were 375 recommendations from previous reviews uh, into racism. <laughs> um, would yeah. the government, why is the government not trying to implement some of these on which a great deal of sort of time, money and expertise has been spent by, by Johnson's predecessors rather than launching another one? Is there, is there any utility to this, whoever was heading it? Absolutely. And I think that's where the criticism should be focused more on like, why hasn't the work, the research that we've already done in the past, why aren't we taking up these recommendations, rather than I think it makes me slightly uncomfortable to see the personal attacks against Mirza herself, whereas I think the better place to focus attention on would be why haven't we looked at the recommendations that have already been put forward. And uh, in, in that I think we can all agree that this government is sorely lacking. How is government coping with the pressures of these extraordinary times? What innovations are needed to face the challenges of the strange new world we're in? And what can the past teach us about how to run a country in times of crises such as these? We need to work out a better way of holding accountable organisations actually accountable. At the Institute for Government, we're dedicated to better government. And throughout the lockdown, we're turning our famous debates, panels and discussions into a new listening experience, IFG Live, so that everyone can hear the best ideas and most original thinking for improving the way our government works. We have to be able to do big things fast before a problem is staring us in the face. That's IFG Live from the Institute for Government, now available at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk or wherever you get your podcasts.
now it's time for our inspirational segment to the barricades. Uh, Nina Schick, uh, as you've been away for a bit, which cause should listeners pay attention to this week? So the cause I'd like to uh, bring attention to is uh, because we are having the conversation about racism and slavery and legacy of slavery in this country right now is the fact that modern-day slavery is still very much a problem. There's about 40, 20 to 40 million people in modern-day slavery in the world today. About 70% of those are women and children. And an estimated 13,000 modern-day slaves uh, actually are here in the UK. So I want to highlight the Hope for Justice charity, which works on ending modern-day slavery here in the UK. Last year, they helped to bring down one of the most extensive networks of modern-day slavery here in Britain, uh, which was to do with forced labor, about 400 victims working for about 50p a day. I think that they're a tremendous organization, and I think they deserve our support. It's hopeforjustice.org. Um, they do tremendous work in helping protect the victims of one-day slavery here in our country. Finally this week, your pocket-sized roundup of the week's Brexit news. Uh, Roz, Best Britain has found that red wall voters are overwhelmingly against No Deal. Nick Cohen says reality is starting to bite, but the inspector of No Deal was around for the 2019 election. We mentioned it a couple of times. It was in the news a bit. Um, why is it different now? What do these figures tell you? It's different because we're getting weary. And we're no longer, if we ever were, the proud, confident nation that was going to go out alone into the world, independent of the EU. We are a country that is uh, the w- pretty much the worst in Europe at dealing with COVID. And that makes things feel very different psychologically. There are signs of a bit of a turnaround in public opinion. The latest uh, YouGov Times poll put people saying that in hindsight, which is a really important question, rather than saying, should we stop Brexit, which is a different question altogether, saying, in hindsight, were we right or wrong to leave the European Union? 40% now say we were right, 47% say we were wrong. And that's a bigger divide than we've People's seen. vote now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't, you know, as I say, it's important that you don't suggest that we change it. The, the, the uh, question is key because it shows whether... Uh, what people actually think of the idea of Brexit as opposed to whether they want to reverse it, which is often inflammatory. So things are starting to change very late on after the vote. Uh, But I think this is a general sign of confidence in Britain as a nation, uh, our confidence in ourselves declining. Um, so, Ros, it appears even if we, you know, we don't ask for an extension now, that there's a sort of possibility to kind of uh, beg for one uh, towards the end of the year. How does that work and how likely is it? It's very difficult to do. There are very differing opinions among lawyers I've spoken to about whether it's even possible or not, because we will have had our chance in June and we will have deliberately passed it up. And there are about three or four ways. They're all set out in Institute for Government paper, if anybody wants to look them up, in which we could try and uh, somehow get around the rules and get ourselves a very last minute extension. But it would be very difficult. So that that means that now we, we will have missed that deadline. Pushing it forward to October or December puts the pressure on even more to get some sort of deal, however poor it might be, as an alternative to no deal. 
And I know you're excited about this one. It's probably that what the podcast has been building up to. Um, in fish news, the <laughs> EU is apparently close to an agreement on fisheries rights. Um, yeah. does, does, does this mean we won't have to talk about it again? It's very exciting because Michel Barnier it is, it has, has, has offered a concession. Uh, you wouldn't know it because we haven't heard much about it and it's obviously portrayed in the Brexit press as them caving in to reality, but it's actually a concession. And it's basically saying that EU fleets don't have an automatic right to fish in British waters. Um, essentially, you might say that it means that there are British fish, providing that they stay in British waters, if you, if you want to look at it that way, and if they want me to talk about British fish again. Provided they like Churchill. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we'll see whether that produces real progress, because there are a number of other issues on fisheries, which I won't go into, but which make it somewhat more complicated than that single okay. concession. One listener, I should say, one listener did point out that they had friends who were fishermen and that I sometimes sounded patronising towards fishermen. It's not that. It's just that it keeps coming up. And no, uh, I, 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 would, love, I love fish. I love, and fish. I, would, I love fish. I love the fishermen that catch them. Um, it's just it does keep coming up and uh, it, the issues involved uh, get rather complicated. Um, Alex, Tory MP George Freeman is expecting a split in the Conservative Party between those who want to keep their commitment to high food standards that was in their manifesto uh, and those who want a closer US trade deal uh, and to hell with food standards. Did Johnson really think that he'd sort of sorted out uh, Tory disunity with his purge of the Remainers and his Brexit pledge? Did he Did he think that they were all going to be four square behind him? Mm, um, they They weren't... They weren't fully behind him to start with. Um, we have to remember that there's a lot of antipathy among Tory MPs for Johnson, but all of them put up with him because they see him as a winner. If that equation begins to change, if he begins to look like a loser, then you can expect the, the Tory party to split on all sorts of issues. Um, you know, there's a group of there's a group of MPs who were ministers, some of whom were quite competent ministers, um, who have been left out of the reshuffles in favour of, let's say, more acquiescent but less um, well-equipped uh, uh, people, who are you know will be looking for an excuse uh, to have a fight. There are those who uh, represent farming constituencies who will be very keen to protect uh, British farming from low standards. Um, I mean, this is the business end. When you get down to brass tacks and, and, and have to choose which industry do I sacrifice in order to get, let's say, uh, equivalents for financial services there will be MPs who are affected. So I don't think it will be a split, but I think it will be a splintering that's different for every individual issue. Uh, and meanwhile, the First Ministers of Wales and Scotland have refused to take part in a Brexit consultation with Johnson. Uh, are, they, are they trying to get him to own this as just an English Tory Brexit, nothing to do with me, mate? Um, and, and is that going to sort of fly with their uh, voters? Yes, yes, to an extent. Um, I, I think the question implies that it was a genuine wish from Westminster to consult with them that's being snubbed for political reasons. I would 
suggest that the fact that there have been several occasions where um, basically Downing Street has issued the policy before the meeting um, in which it's discussed would would point to uh, Boris Johnson being the one that is is trying to get them into a room as political cover, and they've stopped playing along. Nina, finally, podcast fave Nigel Farage is pledging to restart the Brexit party because Johnson is losing control of Brexit. Um, is he serious about this? Is he or is it just his again? LBC show? <laughs> is it, well, his LBC show has been canned uh, and, he, and he needs attention. Should, should we expect a revival of the BXP? What, what, what makes you think that he's an opportunist who wants to just... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, of course, of course, he wants attention. Um, and as if losing Brexit was something that we all hadn't predicted would happen anyway. I mean, so I think everyone who listens to this podcast and all of you guys can agree that one of the most uh, defining features of Brexit is the grim predictability of what's going to happen next. So we all know that losing Brexit is going to happen later this year when the talks uh, don't go as planned. And on top of that, you know, we're going to have um, lots of other problems in this country, not least the end of furlough, potential companies. Uh, they think like the big first round of collapse of companies will be in October, a potential resurgence of COVID because we've been so well at dealing with the first wave um, that as we get closer to winter, we might not only be losing control of Brexit, but we might be losing control of the economy and we might be losing control of the public health system. So I think what Alex just said about Johnson, not necessarily, you know, the Tory party sticking to him because they think he's a winner is absolutely spot on. So I think it might not just be Nige, uh, rabble rousing come the fall, but I, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens within the Tory party itself as well. I think we should just pay Farage uh, a, a handsome salary to guard the Churchill statue day and night, <laughs> like like a beef eater from doing from inside the box. From inside yeah. the box, please. He, he could do his patriotic duty. Uh, he could be close to Churchill. He'd get a decent wage, and he wouldn't need to, you know, you, you know, bother us anymore. I I thought there's the terrific seed of a plan in dotting those boxes all around the countryside <laughs> without anyone knowing which ones are housing actual statues or not, so that, so that all these basically far-right wingers just disperse across the country guarding boxes which may be empty. It sounds like Anthony Gormley's Nazi magnet project. <laughs> It's the end of the show, which means it's time for the Brexit Bridge. Every week we build our bridge a little closer back to Europe, or at least beside Europe. Uh, <laughs> this week, <laughs> Nina Schick gets to do the double. Uh, Nina, what are you adding to the bridge? I think because taking back control is going so well, especially in relation to, to COVID, uh, I, earlier before we started recording, um, Alex, who's in Greece, said kind of, you know, Greece is, uh, doesn't, doesn't want the UK anywhere, anyone from the UK to come to Greece, because, you know, we're the sick man of Europe. So I think the bridge has to be, can we please align with the European medical uh, agency's regulation so that we can benefit from access to a COVID vaccine when it is here? I don't think we need to go on this one alone. Wonderful. Thanks, Nina. 
And that's the show. Thanks to Nina Schick, Ros Taylor and Alex Andreu. Now for our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a thanks to our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to James Bailey, Seamus McCann, Stephen Gallagher, Barry Woodcock and Brendan Pollock. Pollock, did you know Pollock is the ninth most important seafood in the UK? <laughs> and hello from me to Cathy, Martin Carrigan, Paul McMahon, David King and Daniel Sladden. And sending a wave of gratitude from me across the continent to Jason Waters, Raymond Halpenny, Adam Brothwood, Callum Phillips and Sean Topping. And thanks for me to Stephen Welling, Martin, Dee Schneider, Louise McSeveny and Bruce Johnston. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. Remaining X was produced and presented by Dorian Linsky with Nina Schick, Ross Taylor and Alex Andreu. The producer is Andrew Harrison and audio production and scripting was by me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Jacob Archibald and Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. <laughs>